Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hello, old sports, and welcome to another episode of the Hello, Old Sports podcast on the Sports History Network. I'm Dan Newman, the co-host of the Hello, Old Sports podcast, joined, as always, by my brother, Andrew Newman. Andrew, how are you doing today? I'm doing well, Dan. I'm actually uh, very excited. You've um, recently you've had us. Uh, we've we've interviewed a number of uh, of people who've written books, and I've had to read a little faster than I'm accustomed to to get through all of them. But that was not the case with this one. Um, you know, it's a very interesting subject, uh, especially for us being Yankee fans, and you know, just the the way the book was written. It was I I really I breezed through it in I think three sessions. So um, I'm excited to get started. Our special guest, Dan Taylor, author of Baseball at the Abyss, The Scandals of 1926, Babe Ruth, and the Unlikely Savior Who Rescued a Tarnished Game. Dan Taylor, thanks so much for joining us today on Hello Old Sports. Always great to be with a fellow Dan, and in this case, at Andrew, too. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. <laughs> so um, Andrew told you that you know he read through the book and, and really enjoyed it, and, and I really did, too. And so just to sort of start off, tell us a little bit about the book, because you kind of are almost telling two stories at once here, which I thought was interesting. So just sort of uh, give us an idea of of what your book is about. Well, the elevator pitch, since you kind of stole my thunder there, is that it's a a book with two stories. Uh, Certainly begins with the scandals that erupted at the end of the 1926 season, Uh, a game fixing allegation and uh, uh, game betting accusation against two of the biggest stars in the game, Ty Cobb and Chris Speaker, which made it a, a huge scandal. And some sports writers felt it was even bigger than the Black Sox scandal. And then as that plays out, uh, we have the second part of the story, which is Babe Ruth, whose life at that point was a real train wreck and uh, who was the first player to have a, a, an agent or in that case, a, a business manager who uh, was really trying to, to get Ruth's career back on track and also set him up for some uh, big earnings to uh, had him into retirement in a good place and 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 had him uh, try to get his game back in in order by working out and getting in shape. And, you know, we think of the the the, the fat Babe Ruth, but in actuality, in, in 1927, uh, Babe Ruth was a very svelte guy. That was the year he hit 60 home runs. And as a result of working out, he kind of set the, the tone for decades to come in baseball and, and was the first player to embrace what is now commonplace, strength and conditioning. And in doing so, had uh, one of the greatest seasons in baseball history. Yeah, and uh, my brother knows that's always been sort of a, a pet peeve of mine when people who aren't historians, baseball, you know, baseball history people talk about Babe Ruth. It's like they saw a picture of him, maybe he was with the Braves in 1935, and then they remember John Goodman playing him in a movie. And they're like, oh, he was this great big fat guy. And it's like, no, he really wasn't. Maybe the last year or two of his career, but for the most part, and especially the time period you write about here, he was in, you know, tremendous shape for the time. About 24, 25, 26, it started to get away from him. Uh, mm. But but yeah, his early years, uh, first with Boston, then with the Yankees. Why so He was a tremendous athlete. He ran well. He, he had a great arm, of course. He uh, uh, was a tremendous pitcher for about four seasons with the Red Sox and then decided he wanted to hit and had more fun hitting than pitching. And uh, he was a very uh, dynamic outfielder, acrobatic outfielder, a uh, very good base runner, had good good foot speed. And of course, the power. He was very unique for that era. Uh, you know, home run Baker's 12 had kind of set the standard. And then he comes along and just shatters that, uh, really obliterates that idea and, and uh, really changed the game. One of Andrews and I, and I think you write about you, if you don't write about this specifically in the book, you at least to allude to it. He's uh, part of his training regime was he started to box, and there's this famous uh, 
famous movie clip of him in a in a boxing gym i think it was in new york and he's he's like oh what's the idea with these boxing gloves and he's like punching with the guy like what's the idea here and it's uh that's always been one of our favorite clips <laughs> like you said it was a different thing this whole idea of a baseball player any athlete working out in the off season on a workout regime to get in shape well as you probably remembered uh in spring training in 1925 uh he collapsed Twice, once getting off the train in Asheville, North Carolina, when the Yankees were going there for an exhibition game. And then the next day on a train as he was coming into New York City, and uh, he was hospitalized. And uh, initially, the doctors, both in Asheville and in New York, said, it's just overeating. And he, and he really was terrible that way. He was a glutton. Uh, his, his teammates were just shocked at the way he ate. Uh, but in this case, it was really something much worse, and it necessitated uh, stomach surgery, which caused him to miss the first two months of the 1925 season. Uh, you may recall that uh, when he was on that train and collapsed, well, actually, when he collapsed in Asheville and then was on the train to New York the next day, uh, there were reports they emanated from Canada, but also came out over the BBC in England that, that he had died. And, uh, and along the journey, they actually uh, had uh, uh, agents come on the train to check to see if it was true. Uh, but yeah, he, uh, so in, in his rehab after the surgery in 25, he worked with a guy in New York by the name of Artie McGovern mm -hmm. and McGovern was a former boxer who had created kind of a physical therapy business. Uh, he had been beaten up so many times and so badly in the ring that he learned a lot about recovery and, and he worked with a lot of doctors, uh, to rehab their patients and developed quite an interesting, uh, training and rehab business in, in Manhattan. And so w Ruth worked with him uh, to, to strengthen his core uh, following the surgery. And then at the end of the season, they worked a little bit as well. But uh, when he was coming to Hollywood, uh, Christy Walsh, who was his business manager, felt that you know, he would have a captive audience uh, if, if he could work, if they could get McGovern in to work with Ruth while he was making uh, the movie in, in uh, the winter of 1927. And, uh, and McGovern had sized up Ruth very quickly, to your point. He realized Ruth was a real competitive guy. And so he thought, you know, jumping rope or just putting him on a, on a stationary bike just wasn't going to work. Ruth was going to get bored. He wasn't going to do it. But if he could, he could create some competitive endeavors uh, that Ruth would really get into it. And, and so boxing was one of them. Uh, Ruth did box a lot. Uh, they would get a lot of Hollywood extras and they'd throw them in the, in the ring between takes uh, during the filming sessions and, and box with him. And the other thing he liked to do was, was to play racquetball. And so he would set up uh, racquetball games for Ruth and, and even a tennis game uh, with Bill Tilden, who was one of the great players of that day. So, yeah, uh, McGovern did an interesting job that way in, in uh, the, the cardio work with Ruth. And, uh, and Ruth really did take to boxing. And like a lot of things that Babe Ruth did, it had the mix of being substantively important, but also a great PR opportunity. Oh, Christy Walsh never missed a beat. I mean, he, he never missed the chance to get a camera in front of Ruth to get something in the paper about him. And that's how their relationship began in 1921. Uh, Christy Walsh had the idea to create a, a syndicated uh, news service uh, built around ghostwriting, which in terms of using sports figures was, was really quite unique. Um, and he hired sports writers to... Uh, to write columns uh, in a case of Babe Ruth, who was really his first big uh, client. Uh, he actually staked his business on being able to land Babe Ruth. And then he, he got a top sports writer who would ghostwrite uh, twice a week column for Babe Ruth. Uh, and anytime there was an opportunity to, to get Ruth in front of a camera, a visit to an orphanage, a, a check presentation here or there, doing something with kids. Christy Walsh was, was remarkable that way. And of course, when he was, uh, training in Hollywood, yep. the, uh, uh, the the event with Bill Tilden was probably more a photo op than actually a training session. Yeah, R Ruth is such an interesting, I was saying this to my brother the other day where it'll sound like a ridiculous comparison, but almost like you can't really write a book about Abraham Lincoln. You have to write 10 books or you have to focus on one specific aspect of his life. Ruth, and I've, I've read, a, it's interesting because I read a, a book specifically about the 1923 season and sort of the off season of 23 between 22 and 23 
was very similar in that Ruth had had a disappointing 1922. He had a horrible World Series. And he basically said, I'm going back to my farm in Massachusetts to get in shape. Now, it wasn't as regimented as the period we're talking about now, but it's almost like every couple of years early in his Yankee tenure, he would have these kind of fall offs where he wasn't taking care of himself. He wasn't disciplined enough. And then he would have to come back. And in this way, obviously, this was the most dramatic of them because he did it with uh, Christy Walsh's help and, and McGovern and I think one thing we almost can't take for granted is that he got linked up with a a fitness guy who actually seemed to know what he was talking about, which back then you couldn't really take for granted. He could have had him doing something that wasn't really physiologically sound and nobody really would have been able to call that out at the time. You're right. Even today, that's a huge headache. I'm acquainted with a lot of uh, Major League Baseball strength coaches, and they often have told me that their biggest fear is the offseason. And and where their players are going to wind up training in the offseason and who they're going to listen to and, and what wacky ideas might get thrown at them. And uh, so I was really I was really struck by that. But that, that here, you know, Ruth uh, didn't just train, but he had a guy who really knew what he was talking about. And, and, you know, I looked at some of the eating plans the guy put him on and and you compare them to eating plans today. They're, they're, they're really very sound, um, you know, at him, at him uh, more on proteins and, and things of that nature. And. So it was really interesting that Artie McGovern was way ahead of his time and, and and an early innovator in that particular field of nutrition as well as strength and conditioning. So, uh, you know, that, that that's really remarkable that Ruth was able to connect with someone uh, because that was a problem in a lot of aspects of Babe Ruth's life that, that everybody wanted a piece of him. And and he really, he really got cheated and screwed a lot, particularly his first you know two, three years with the Yankees. And then, you know, once he connected with Christy Walsh, she was a guy that he found that he could trust. And, and Christy Walsh helped sift out the riffraff and, and connect him with people who really could help him. Uh, and this was certainly a, a key example of that. Where is he in his personal life at this point? His first marriage is sort of basically for all intents and purposes broken up, right? Correct. And, and that was part of the issue. You know, Ruth at that time between the 26 and 27 seasons, his life was really a train wreck. He was broke. For all intents and purposes, he was broke, and 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 his first marriage breaking up was was one of the reasons he uh, settled. He, they never divorced because they were both uh, very strong practicing Catholics, and so they would not divorce. Um, so he gave her his Massachusetts farm, and uh, and gave her a hundred thousand dollars cash. Uh, and so, yeah, he had been uh, fooling around with the woman who became his second wife, uh, and. There were a lot of other financial issues uh, at play there as well. I mean, he he loved to play the horses. He never won. Uh, there was an infamous story about uh, a barnstorming opportunity he had in Cuba where uh, he was paid $15,000 to come to Cuba, play with a Cuban team, and uh, and play in several exhibition games in Cuba. And he hadn't been down in Cuba very long uh, when he wired his bank for another $15,000 because he'd lost the $15,000 he was paid for coming to Cuba at the horse track. And then I believe ultimately he had to wire for yet a third uh, batch of money uh, to be able to get home. And, and uh, that was the way he was. He, he spent uh, lavishly on clothes and, and never thought twice about leaving them in closets when he finished road trips, uh, leaving them behind in hotels. Uh, he had nine luxury automobiles, very high-priced luxury automobiles. So, yeah, he, he spent money as fast as he made it. And that was another area where Christy Walsh was very concerned and uh, and really felt that this particular offseason between the 26 and 27 seasons was a year when he had to do something pretty big to uh, get Ruth back on track financially, but also set him up for life after baseball. I think it's also interesting to note that from a purely on-the-field point of view, Ruth is not necessarily, I mean, the numbers are great. And even if Ruth never played a game after the 1926 season, he would still probably be considered, you know, if not the greatest, one of the greatest offensive baseball players of all time. But by at the end of 26, he's only won one World Series. He had a well, he's won one World Series with with the Yankees Yankees. as as a position player with the Yankees. He'd won what? Three in Boston, three in Boston. And yet he's also he had a what a terrible year in 25, right? Like numbers that were 
mediocre. And then 26 was a little bit better year, but maybe tell us a little bit. The 1926 World Series didn't necessarily end so well for Babe Ruth. No, and I think some of that, yeah. <laughs> yeah, one of the most inexplicable base running decisions in the history of the game. Uh, you know, with two outs in the in the top of the ninth inning and the Yankees trailing, Ruth decides to try and steal second base and gets thrown out. That's the end of the World Series. Uh, Yankees lose. Uh, uh, unbelievable. Um, and, of course, you know, Miller Huggins, the Yankee manager, excused Ruth and uh, said he was, you know, he had, had good intentions. But at the same time, uh, I think there was a big brain fart there. Uh, but, yeah, in the 26 season, he bounced back somewhat. But most most sports writers were really suggesting that uh, he was coming to the end of the road. The 25, of course, the stomach surgery and all that. Uh, really affected his game. He he did not have a good season. He was suspended during that season for insubordination in St. Louis uh, and uh, attempted to go. He was suspended, told to go home to New York, instead went to Chicago to try to uh, appeal to Commissioner Landis to lift the suspension, uh, even though it was by the Yankees and not the commissioner. <laughs> uh, and, and the Yankee owner uh, summoned him home to New York and, and really chastised him and and uh, told Ruth he wasn't going to get back on the field until he apologized to the to the manager, who also wanted the apology made in front of the team. Um, so yeah, he missed a lot of time that that season and, and did not play well. Twenty six, there was a bit of a bounce back, but it was not a, a, a significant bounce back. And, and that's where Christy Walsh really stepped in and knew that uh, that Ruth had to do something. That that there was still some baseball in Ruth. And he had to, to get himself back in shape and uh, and try to extend his career. And fortunately, that you know he listened and was able to do that. We uh, obviously will return to Ruth as we talk about the home run uh, chase and and you know introduce a, another character in Lou Gehrig. But our last two exchanges, we've discussed both gambling and Kennesaw Mountain Landis. So I feel like now might be a good time for us to circle back to the other major plot uh, in your book, especially the early part of it. Can you explain sort of the inciting incident, you know, way back in, you know, several years before this, what was it that, what was the germ of the scandal? Uh, you know, but with it involving Ty Cobb and Trish Speaker, and then how did it come to a boil right as the 1926 season off season was beginning? Well, in, in September of 1919, uh, the Tigers were hosting Cleveland in a three game series. And after uh, the second game of the series, uh, Ty Cobb, who was the player manager of the Tigers, and Dutch Leonard, one of his pitchers, they happened to bump into Trish Speaker, the player manager of Cleveland. And Smokey Joe Wood, a uh, pitcher with Cleveland, who had been uh, Dutch Leonard's roommate, both were with the Boston Red Sox years earlier. And uh, the White Sox were, they did pretty much locked up the American League pennant. Cleveland had second place, pretty well sewn up. And it was a battle between Detroit and the New York Yankees for third. And Cobb made mention to Speaker how they could really use a win to nail down third place. Um, every place in the standings meant a little bit more money. And so the, the Tiger players were really keen to, to get that third place money. And so Cobb vented to a uh, speaker who was a friend that, you know, they were re- they could really use some help. And speaker's alleged comment was, you guys will win tomorrow, even if I have to pitch. Uh, all the, those four ultimately left that meeting and thought, well, since we know the outcome of the game tomorrow, let's go put some money on it. And uh, there was a, an employee at uh, the ballpark in Detroit that, uh, according to testimony, regularly uh, made wagers on behalf of Cobb. Um, Smokey Joe Wood put some money down on the game as well, and allegedly Speaker did. And uh, Detroit won. Quite handily. And the sports writers in their articles about that particular game uh, were really puzzled by the way Cleveland played that day. And Tris Speaker's comment when he was pressed about it was, well, we wanted to get out of there fast so that we could take the train home and not have to uh, take the boat home. 
Uh, and it didn't sound like people really bought into it at all. Now, now after this game and after the season, both Cobb and Tris Speaker sent letters to Dutch Leonard. And uh, Leonard had kept those letters in his drawer for seven years, never had any intent to do anything with them. In Cobb's notes, it, it thanked him, but they were a little bit vague. Um, but in Smokey Joe Woods' letter, it made mention that also in that envelope was a check for, I believe it was $1,600, and it talked about their wagering on the game. So in the fall of 26, Dutch Leonard's talking to a former Tigers teammate, Harry Heilman, and he lets slip that he has these letters from Wood and Cobb. Well, Heilman, like a lot of guys who played for Ty Cobb, hated Ty Cobb, and he pressed Leonard. He said, listen, I'm talking to Frank Navin, the owner of the Tigers, tomorrow at such and such a time. If he has not heard about these letters, I'm telling him. You've got to tell him about the letters. And, and Leonard really stewed over what to do. His wife was insistent that he not turn the letters over. She thought that they would you know, get a lot of backlash. They would become pariahs with their friends in baseball. Uh, they had a big farm and mansion uh, here in Central California where he had a large farm. And uh, they, they frequently entertained ballplayers. And she was a former vaudeville actress. So a lot of entertainers came to hang out on the farm. And, and uh, she was afraid of how they would react. And ultimately, Leonard felt that he was placed between a rock and a hard spot and had no choice. So he did uh, call Frank Navin. He told him about the letters. Uh, he turned the letters over to Frank Navin, who was shocked by their content. And Navin turned the letters over to Ben Johnson, the president of the American League. Johnson had he had, a, he had a force of, de of detectives. They looked into it. They came back and 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 told him that you know these this was legit that it very likely happened, that a game was thrown, that these players and, and player managers did bet on the game. So Ben Johnson summoned Ty Cobb and Tris Speaker to his office in Chicago. They were on a hunting trip in uh, November in, in Wyoming, 26, and they came to his office, and he laid out what he knew. And he told them, I cannot uh, claim, uh, prove without a shadow of a doubt that you did fix this game, but you did bet on it, and you were managers. And that's enough for me. You're through with baseball. And he said, but in respect to your careers and respect to your family, we will not say why you're leaving the game. We'll give you the opportunity to say why you're leaving baseball. And the next day, Ty Cobb announced his retirement, uh, said that he just didn't want to manage anymore, that the Tigers weren't going to be competitive and just didn't feel like it was a, a team he wanted to manage and felt like he was at the end of the road as a player. Tris Speaker, on the other hand, uh, was a little vague because he had led Cleveland to a second-place finish. The fans in Cleveland were excited. And uh, and Speaker, he was a little vague about why he was stepping away from the game. And that, that caused media to, to do a little bit of digging. Ultimately, a reporter for the Chicago Tribune got wind of what had happened, approached Kennesaw Mountain Landis, who had been briefed on the matter. But Landis kind of had a feeling that, that maybe Ben Johnson didn't tell him everything. And, and Landis came out to California. He met with Dutch Leonard. Leonard showed him copies of the letter. Um, and not long after, it was uh, about Christmas Eve uh, or thereabouts, uh, the word got out. Uh, the Chicago Tribune printed a big story about it. And, and Cobb decided to fight. And, and he claimed he, he made a lot of uh, crazy accusations uh, about Dutch Leonard and and decided he was going to fight, and uh, Landis decided that he had to have hearings. Uh, and at that point, more rumors of thrown games started to come up, come out. Uh, Swede Risberg, the shortstop for the 1919 Chicago White Sox, the Black Sox, he was uh, said to be the ringleader of the Black Sox scandal. Uh, he uh, made claims to a, a newspaper reporter of more fixed games, some of which involved Cobb. So Landis ended up holding hearings in January of 27. And it really was just uh, a lot of hearsay. There was, there was no concrete evidence. Uh, and at the end of the hearings, he cleared everybody. But then reporters realized he, was, he wasn't dealing with the whole Dutch Leonard, Trish Speaker, Ty Cobb matter. And they pressed him on it. And what was happening behind the scenes was uh, both Cobb and Speaker had retained attorneys. These attorneys were pressing 
uh, for a hearing in which they could face their accuser, in this case, Dutch Leonard. And Leonard had been threatened, and he, he steadfastly refused to go to Chicago for the hearing. And, and Landis felt like he had no choice but to reinstate Cobb and Speaker. Um, and the owner of the Tigers said he did not want Cobb back. Cleveland's owner said the same thing. Uh, Cobb signed with Philadelphia, played two final seasons there with Connie Mack and the A's. And uh, Speaker played a year with Washington and a year with Philadelphia and, uh, and then called it a career. But there were a lot of people felt that because it was such big names involved, Cobb and Speaker, that this was far worse than the Black Sox scandal. And a, and a lot of columnists said this really sent baseball's reputation into the gutter, uh, that it was akin to wrestling and horse racing, that you really couldn't trust the outcome of games anymore. And, and baseball going into the 27 season was in a really bad place. So just to sort of give a little bit of background here for those listeners who may not be aware, it was a little bit of a different situation in baseball in the 1920s. And in some ways, this this um, this paradigm kind of continues up, up until the days of Bud Selig. And what that is, is that there's a commissioner but then there's also an American League president and National League president with some degree of autonomy over those individual leagues. And I've talked before. And, about and real quick, Dan Johnson was the president of the American League as long as there had been an American League and yeah. predated yeah. the system that had him subservient to anybody. So, yeah. And that was another piece of it I was going to get to. I was going to talk about how even into the early 90s, I remember going to a game a, ba- a game at Yankee Stadium and catching a foul ball and the ball had the signature of the American League president on it who was actually Bobby Brown the former Yankee who passed away a couple years ago and that was sort of the way things worked in baseball forever and as you go back further and further there was more of this autonomy for the league presidents and as Andrew mentioned Ben Johnson had founded the American League he'd been the guy who really fought to make it a second major league with the national league that had been around for about 25 years before that. And for pretty much the whole dead ball era, that first 20 years of the 20th century, that was the governing structure that survived. There was a, an American league president, a national league president. I think there was a third member of like a book commission black Sox scandal comes in, scares the hell out of baseball people. And then they bring in Kennesaw mountain Landis to be this sort of all powerful commissioner but there's still sort of these remnants of the the old system where the league presidents had some degree of autonomy over their leagues. And Dan, I think that that's sort of another one of these interesting subplots of this whole story is that the rivalry between Landis and Johnson, which at this point is six or seven years old, kind of impacts the way that both men deal with this scandal. It was ugly. And uh, to your your point, Ben Johnson was a really interesting guy. He was an autocrat. He'd been a sports writer in Ohio, uh, took control of a minor league, the Western League, and he built it up into the American League and then gained major league status. And, and that structure back then, there was kind of an umbrella organization, the National Commission, and it was a, a rule by committee. Then the American and National Leagues were like two different companies. You know, they were like, Coke and Pepsi, if you will. I mean, they were two different companies. And and Ben Johnson ruled the American League with an iron thumb. Uh, he he was a, a real strict guy. And and he was really offended when uh, Kennesaw Mountain Landis was given the powers that he was given and made the commissioner. And he worked a lot to undermine it. Uh, there was a lot of leaks to the media, a lot of crazy stuff that went on. And, and this incident really pushed Landis to a breaking point. And, and he was about to call, or he had summoned all the owners uh, to Chicago for a meeting in which he was going to lower the boom. He was going to tell them, it's Ban Johnson or me. You guys have to get rid of it. And before that could happen, Ban Johnson knew what was happening. He was having a lot of health issues. Uh, and he surprisingly showed up at a meeting, an American League meeting, and a, a meeting of American League owners, and, and announced that he was going to step down uh, for health reasons, and, and that really uh, ended the, the feud with Landis. But one of the things with Van Johnson, he was always upset about 
the, the Black Sox scandal of 1919 because of, of the way it painted the American League. And he was forever trying to claim that World Series prior to that had been thrown by National League teams. And there was a lot of talk that, that the Giants threw the 1917 World Series. And, and he pressed that constantly and begged for a, an investigation and never got it. Now, Landis claimed after these hearings uh, in January of 27 that he had investigated the claims of the, of the 17 uh, World Series potentially being fixed, and he, he found nothing to it. Uh, and, and both men, Landis and Johnson, had access to these large teams of private investigators and were constantly following up uh, leads and tips uh, about players being on the take and games being fixed and it, it was so out of control back then. It really was. And the surprising thing to me was that, you know, when Landis ruled as he did on the, on the, the White Sox players following the trial in 21, um, he didn't put a lot of, of additional measures into place. And when this scandal came about, a lot of Swede Risberg's accusations uh, were excused for being not bribes, but gifts. And, and what they were claiming back then was that it was very common that if your club was battling another club for a spot in the standings, a final spot in the standings, and it would mean some money, that it was not uncommon for the team that benefited to pool some money or buy suits of clothes or whatever uh, for the team that beat the team that you were battling for that spot in the standings. And, and so some of these games that, that Swede Risberg complained about the players involved simply said, "No, no, 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 no. We didn't give them. We didn't pay. We didn't bribe these guys with money. We we gave them gifts and thanked them for what they did." Uh, and so that was when Landis finally stepped in and put a he put a number of things in place after the twenty seven hearings. Uh, that it surprises me he didn't do in twenty one, but things like gifts and and whatnot they they meant in many cases either full season or lifetime bans from baseball. Uh, so that was really when, when Landis ratcheted things up a notch, uh, you know, using this, uh, these hearings in 27, ultimately get rid of Ben Johnson and, uh, and also put a lot more safeguards in place to, to guard against fixed games and, and players betting on games. It's really amazing how much this story touches on so many of the previous either scandals or issues in the 20 years prior in baseball. I mean, just alone in this story, accusations are cast about the 1917 World Series. I think the 1923 World Series, the Yankees and the Giants. Obviously, guys like Swede Risberg and Chick Gandel get a second act uh, that I don't I didn't know they were a part of this story. And then just one additional wrinkle that occurred to me because I read a book on this. One of the players in that meeting with Speaker and Cobb was Smokey Joe Wood. And this wasn't the series itself, but a game in the series. There have always been rumors that in 1912, he was he had pitched so well in the series for the Red Sox and so well all season. And since a game had gotten called for darkness, but the owners were, you know, they weren't going to give the players any share of the money for the game that got called for darkness, that he went out and intentionally lost game seven, which was actually game six. And, you know, the implication being that he'd been so good, he let up seven runs in the first two innings, turned around and pitched amazingly the next day, and the, the Red Sox beat the Giants in the World Series. But there's always been sort of a hint in that game that Smokey Joe Wood intentionally lost that game, probably as a way to get back at the owners and also to put some money in his own pocket. So you really all, you know, it, it, it goes back a decade and a half now with this story touching on possible improprieties. And, and, and to Smokey Joe Wood's involvement in this 1919 game and then the hearings in, in 27, Cobb and Speaker went out of their way to try and protect him. Uh, he had, following his baseball career, uh, one of his sons was playing at Yale and Yale hired Smokey Joe Wood as their head baseball coach. And it was a great opportunity for him, uh, a good living for he and his family. And, and Cobb and Speaker went out of their way to protect him. They did not want this to cost him his job. And, and Yale did pull him in and, and talk to him about it. And, and they issued a statement that they were satisfied 
that he did nothing wrong and he would remain as their head coach. But uh, there were a lot of interesting implications that, that sur- swirled around Smokey Joe Wood uh, over the years in his career. And, and it was interesting because he was so well liked by, by teammates and peers that, that here in this particular instance, in January of 27, uh, some of the principals involved really went uh, to great lengths to protect him. There's a great book, um, and, and not to keep talking about other books, but yours, Dan, because yours books was was incredible, and we both enjoyed it very much. But just to sort of take this in a slightly different direction for a second, there's a book by, uh, if you're a baseball fan, you probably know this book. It's called Glory of Their Times by Lawrence Ritter, and it was basically an oral history of the, of basically, you know, the dead ball era. And Wood was interviewed for this book. He gave sort of an on-the-record interview, and then he gave a second interview to Ritter where he kind of confessed to the whole thing a little bit more. And that that I think that interview just has been published, you know, within the last 10 years or so. So he was definitely one of those guys who, like you said, kind of protected things while he was alive but was willing to let, let the truth go a little bit. Um, and then I think um, the other thing I kind of want to ask, because you really kind of touch on the timeline really well about Cobb, Cobb especially, but both of them, Cobb especially, um, why is it do you think that he is so willing at the beginning to just sort of slink away quietly, but then so eager to fight to the death over this whole thing once it gets public? Is it just the fact that it's public and he doesn't want his reputation? Or what changes with Cobb? Well, I think the fact that it was public uh, mm-hmm. changed everything. I think that you know, he was near, he knew he was near the end of the road, and uh, he wasn't going to beat Van Johnson. Uh, he knew how strong Van Johnson's authority was, and uh, so he was willing to accept it. He wasn't happy about it, but he was willing to accept it and, and just move on. Um, but you know, some of the great sports writers, when when he started fighting it. Uh, you know, there were some of the, the top sports writers of the day who said, wait a minute, what, what guy accepts this and, and walks away and, and then, it, you know, accepts a ruling like this if he wasn't guilty? And, and I think that's what a lot of people close to it thought. But uh, Cobb, Cobb just went scorched earth. You know, his father was a politician. And he knew how to play the game. I mean, he one of the first things he did was he got on a train to Washington, D.C. I like this. This is a, one of my favorite parts of the book. Yeah, he he goes right to Washington, D.C. And I mean, the things he did was crazy. They were crazy. They didn't have a chance at all of succeeding. But it got him a lot of publicity and a lot of sympathy. I mean, he, he went to the post, the head of the post office and said, this has got to be a crime because Dutch <laughs> Leonard used the mail. Uh, you know, he went to he went to people in Congress and in the Senate and and asked them to open hearings into what what Dutch Leonard was doing to him and and you know they all of course you know jumped on the soapbox and said this is terrible and we'll do what we can but then privately they would tell newspapermen oh, I don't know what we can do about this 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 isn't in our jurisdiction I don't think there's anything we can do you mm-hmm. know and then he then he gets on a train and goes to Chicago and and holds court with all the media in a hotel suite and he's crying and. You know, how could Dutch Leonard do this to me? And, and then he, he, uh, he goes to Detroit and, and holds court for the writers who he had known for so many years in Detroit and, and, you know, very emotional. And, you know, what's Dutch Leonard doing to me? He's, he's just being vindictive because I, I released him. And, uh, you know, Dutch Leonard got hurt. And then yeah. he, he tried to make the claim that Leonard did it for money. And, he, and then and Cobb tried to claim that, Oh, well, during the 27 season, I warned Kennesaw Mountain Landis that, that Leonard was shopping these letters, letters around to people in the East for money. That's crazy. Um, and, and, you know, Leonard insisted that uh, the money, what money he did get from the American League was an injury settlement. And it had nothing to do with the letters. That It was just coincidental that, that the timing was, you know, fairly similar. Uh, but Cobb seized on that, and, and the newspapers ran with it that Leonard sold the letters, and he had sold his soul, and he was a Judas, and on and on and on. And uh, you know, the media, media just lapped it all up. And of course, uh, you know, Leonard remained quiet and, and wasn't going to make comments, and was just going to move on with his life. And and he got slaughtered. And and there's a lot of people uh, 
for many, many decades that still believed, uh, you know, Cobb's insistence. One of the things I tried to do because the, the New York Daily News came out with, with something I did not include it in the book um, because I thought it was a little outrageous. But the New York Daily News came up with something where a writer wrote that uh, he had come out to Fresno, uh, which is where I live, and that uh, he had gone to the county and and looked at Dutch Leonard's records and, and that Leonard uh, was near bankruptcy and and uh, and that Leonard uh, needed money desperately and and, and and kind of you know reaffirming. Cobb's claims. And, and I went and looked that year, you know, uh, Dutch Leonard was one of the biggest grape growers in America. He mm-hmm. had more than 2000 acres. And, uh, and I was looking at the, the, the price that year, uh, for grapes, raisin grapes, wine grapes. And, you know, even if Dutch, even if Dutch Leonard had a bad year and was only able to sell 10% of his crop, he still would have gotten six figures. In nineteen, you know, twenty six, twenty seven. So, uh, I really, you know, just going through the farming records here and, and what the crop prices were and the tonnage that you would get for an acre of, of grapes and things of that nature, I had a real hard time believing uh, the claims that Leonard uh, was struggling financially. And, and the same article said that Leonard's wife pushed him to do it. And there were a number of articles in the newspaper here in Fresno once it all broke where uh you know muriel uh, his wife muriel uh was insistent that he not uh reveal these letters so and it seems like all of his reservations about getting involved came true and then so absolutely yes in a big way yeah he uh i don't know how that tainted him the rest of his life i don't know if it did i mean he he, what was really interesting he, he he just when he held out one year he took up golf and he became one of the best golfers and amateur golfers in California. Uh, and there's still courses here and around Fresno where there's plaques up there from him winning uh, club and city championships. And, and it was really interesting because I've known the pro at, at the club that he belonged to. I've known the pro for many, many years. And, and I, I asked him when I was doing research for the book about Dutch Leonard. He goes, you know, I heard something about a guy by that name once. Oh, but we got some guys in their 80s and 90s. I'll, I'll see if any of them know anything about him. And, and they said, you know, we kind of cleaned out a lot of old memorabilia, and we probably threw his stuff away. Oh. <laughs> I, oh, go ahead, Dan. I'm sorry. So I, we want to sort of pivot back to the 27 season here in a second, but let's just sort of put a fine point on it. Dan, this happened, right? It did. Yeah. No question. No question. It did. I guess the question is, and this is more rhetorical, um, but I'd love to hear your thoughts and, and Andrew's too, actually. It, you wonder whether something like this was that big of a deal. Now, whether it should have been is another question, but it sounds as if, first of all, it was almost like the decision to lose the game came before the decision to bet on it, which is correct. Sort of, it, it, maybe that's a distinction without a difference, but it's interesting to note. And, you know, you read stories about whether it's John McGraw and sort of his close relationships with gamblers, uh, switching sports for a minute. You know, Andrew and I, you know, being native New Yorkers, we're, you know, New York Giants football fans. And Tim Mara founded the New York Giants in 1925. He was a he was a bookmaker. He was a legal bookmaker. And that was how he got his money to buy and found a team that's been in now in the NFL for going on a hundred years. So obviously what happened only a few weeks later in the world series changed the way everybody looked at gamblers and baseball, but you wonder if they necessarily, you know, Cobb speaker would, you wonder if they even realized the sort of the extent of what they were doing when they did it. Or if it was just sort of no big deal, this wasn't like throwing a World Series. Well, one a couple of thoughts to that, and, and no, I, I think it was no big deal to them because I think they had done it before. This is just mm-hmm. my guess from everything I've pieced together. Uh, you know, when a guy who works at the ballpark in Detroit is subpoenaed to testify in front of uh, Landis and comes in with forged betting slips to protect Cobb. Uh, and he is described as the guy who was basically Cobb's runner making his bets for him. That suggests to me that 
that this particular game with Cleveland wasn't a one-shot deal. Mm-hmm. You know, if he has a guy who everybody knows is placing bets for Cobb, so Cobb doesn't get caught, uh, that would certainly suggest Cobb's been doing stuff like this for a while. Cobb was an immensely competitive guy. Um, and one of the things that I think I mentioned in the book was that, you know, when Ben Johnson was investigating this, he talked about having had an investigator following the Cleveland ball club for the, the entire season. And that, that that private investigator in his report said, those players in the dugout never once talked about baseball. The conversation during every game was about what was happening at the local track. <laughs> so it, you know it was a it was a very common thing for ball players then it was uh you know they were competitive individuals plus they weren't paid greatly mm. uh looking to make extra money uh similar to Ruth in a, in a sense a lot of fans loved giving them tips they rubbed elbows with a lot of gamblers i mean i touch on the Rogers Hornsby i was uh, just about to mention that yeah and, and uh you know they were in the company of a lot of gamblers and who wanted information in exchange for friendship and so, yeah, it, it, was, it was really common back then. And, and some of that, when you look at that, it, it scares me today uh, with where baseball's going. But we can talk about that later. You know, it's, we could talk about it later or we could take two minutes on it right now. Because I think Andrew, <laughs> I think Andrew and I, I don't want to speak for him, but I think we're sort of in agreement on this. That sports need to be real careful that this is, this is not just something that happened for two weeks in 1919. Well, and that was, that was the point I was going to make about this whole thing, which is people it's been well-documented and I think fairly so how much of a black eye, the 1919 white Sox that got, you know, the eight men out famously gave baseball and sports at the time with what they did. In almost equal measure, they took the fall for a lot of things that and I don't mean they took the fall like they didn't do it, but it was easy to say, look at what these eight guys did and look at how just these eight guys throwing these particular games. You know, look at how much they tarnished baseball, which was always clean before that and was always clean after that. And anybody who knows anything knows that's not true. They know that things like we're talking about now happened all the time. The most benign explanation was that Ty Cobb knew his team had a, you know, was going to win the next day and bet on his team. But, you know, the, the, like you said, this, I, the, the fact that they were so easily writing letters about it shows you that they didn't think it was something that was that out of the ordinary that they really needed to cover their tracks about it. So, I think when you talk about the modern era with, with gambling and, you know, that's one positive to how much guys make now is somebody's probably not going to throw a game to make five grand, but they, there's a reason for a hundred years. And I'm not even talking morally because I don't care if people want to bet on sports, you know, non who aren't involved. There's a reason that for so long, there was this big wall between sports and gambling you know, that these leagues had in place with the players and the owners and the teams, TV. And we didn't just like that basically just went away in an instant. And now, uh, you know, you wonder when is the I mean, we've had a few suspensions and things, but you wonder when. When's the first major problem going to happen in this post gambling, you know, legalized, fully s- sanctioned by the league era? Yeah. Well, you just look at the NFL over the last few months. Uh, you know, you've had several players who have been uh, suspended for gambling. There's rumors now about a player, an exorbitant uh, dollar figures bet. Uh, there's so many ways to gamble. There's so many people involved in gambling. I think the I think the common uh, answer to that is, oh, they're so well, like, like you alluded to, Andrew, they're, they're so well compensated. They don't have any motivation to gamble. Uh, you know, my response to that is money is not the issue. It's competitiveness. These guys are competitive. Uh, and there's just so many reasons to gamble. And we're not mm-hmm. just talking about gambling in the States. We're not talking just about players that are U.S. citizens. You know, we, what about what can go on in Puerto Rico, the Dominican, other areas in the world? And, the, and there's a lot of gambling that goes on, obviously, that is not in a regulated setting that you have to be concerned with. I think there's a lot of 
software safeguards that have been put in place for the legalized forms of gambling, but there's a lot of other forms of gambling that can take place where very concerning things could happen. And, and, and I do worry that, that we could have a huge scandal. The thing, I think the thing you, you look at is, you know, what the, what the Black Sox scandal did, if that had just been a series against the Browns, I don't know that anybody really would have made a big deal about it. Uh, you know, Ban Johnson probably would have punished these guys and probably kept it somewhat quiet. Uh, but in the World Series, you know, this really called into question the integrity of the sport and the validity of results in the game. And, that, and that's where Ruth initially, you know, uh, in, in 22 after the 21, 22 after the court case, and then in 27 after this situation, here's a here's a six foot two, 200 pound guy hitting the ball, you know, through windows outside of ballparks. Uh, and that can't be fixed. You know, people are saying, no, this, this is, this is legitimate. This is incredible talent. Uh, this is not rigged. You know, these guys are throwing fastballs and curves, knuckleballs and spitters to try to get him out. And, and so that did reinstate the integrity of the game. But yeah, I, I'm really concerned about, uh, baseball just being a scandal away from, uh, having some real serious trouble. Occasionally on this podcast, I will have sort of a, a heft form thought that I just come up with. And this is going to be one of those instances. I feel like in a lot of ways, Ruth's personality was perfect for this because it looked, the man had his vices, obviously food, booze, women, just, you know, driving fast. I mean, didn't he, I don't know where I read this, but he like, he crashed like six cars one month or something <laughs> yeah. like that. Yeah. <laughs> but his sort of, I don't know, wrong word to use here, but his sort of childlike personality, plus the fact that he was making so much money from endorsements and every other damn thing. He was not a guy who was going to be touched by the gambling piece of it because he was just so intent on just, you know, living every moment to its fullest with home runs, with whatever. So you, you don't hear of a whiff of sort of the gambling stuff with Ruth. So I think not just his skill, but his personality sort of made him, um, immune to the gambling influence, I would say. Well, Possibly. you're right. And, and Landis was asked when all this broke out uh, about Ruth. And he said, Ruth would never do anything like this. In fact, when Ruth was asked about this, when Sweet Risberg came out with, with his claims, uh, <laughs> Ruth says Sweet Risberg needs to be strung up by his ankles and dropped in boiling oil. Uh, he had a, a love of the game. He had an appreciation for the game. And I think a lot of that had to do with his upbringing, you know, at St. Mary's, uh, you know, being in that environment. Uh, I, I think, you know, he was really, he, he was a ruffian. There's no question. I had a tough upbringing, but I do think, um, you know, that those priests at St. Mary's really instilled a sense of right and wrong in Babe Ruth. Uh, and, and with everything baseball was doing for him, bringing him that, that adulation uh, that was really missing from his childhood, um, you know, I, I think that the idea of hurting the game uh, was just something that, that was foreign to him. It was not acceptable to him. And you know, I, I don't think he was going to go down that road. Yeah, he had his vices. There's no question. But uh, I think in terms of illegal gambling or fixing games, things of that nature, no, there was not a chance of him crossing that line. Should we, um, and we, we obviously won't have the time to go month by month or anything like that, <laughs> but should we just sort of briefly touch on the 27 season, the home run chase and Lou Gehrig, who for the first four months or four plus months of the season was really matching Ruth shot for shot. And that was just enthralling the country uh, that Ruth actually had competition in the home run race. And there were a lot of sports writers around the country that were saying baseball has a new home run hero. You know, Ruth's days are done. Uh, and Lou Gehrig is the new hero. Um, yeah, Gehrig had a, a tremendous season, uh, matched Ruth. You know, Ruth got off to a very slow start. He picked up a bad head cold uh, late in spring training. They played some exhibition games uh, in very cold weather. And uh, he and a few other players got bad head colds. So he got off to a bit of a slow start. But about May, he really uh, started to, to, to get cranking and uh, went on a huge binge. And then uh, not long after was when Gehrig started uh, uh, matching him. And, and it was thrilling. I mean, this was a year when Charles Lindbergh flew across the – made that first uh, 
transatlantic flight. And he only got adulation for just a, a, a brief few days. And then the country turned its attention back to Gehrig and Ruth. Uh, <laughs> it, it, this was spectacular. And, and you look at the attendance that, that some teams pulled in during the course of the season. I mean, almost 47% of the Red Sox home attendance that season came from those 12 games with the Yankees. I mean, uh, that's what the, the battle with Gehrig and Ruth was doing around uh, the American League. Uh, it, it just was a huge headline writer and, and a tremendous form of excitement. Of course, as a team, the Yankees, you know, they were out in front all year long and, and ran away with the pennant. I mean, they had it in the bag by the 4th of July. And in fact, the team that they finished ahead of by, you know, 14 games or whatever was the the Philadelphia Athletics with the newly signed Ty Cobb, but it was never a never a pennant race, and that was the famed 27 Yankees, and that 1927 was the year that the Yankees became the Yankees in a lot of ways, that Ruth became Ruth the legend, wins another World Series, wins another one the following year, hits the 60 home runs, which stays the record, so he really did uh, sort of to turn a phrase here. He really did bring baseball back from the abyss in that 1927 and, season. And that's what many sports columnists and sports writers strongly felt. It's interesting. You mentioned the A's and, and uh, you know, they had signed Zach Weed and Eddie Collins, you know, Connie Mack really felt like he had a great opportunity to, to uh, catapult uh, the Yankees and, 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 you know, win it all that year. And, and they finished way back. In fact, they were so far back that at one point in September, uh, Ty Cobb just, he, he left. He said, I'm going to go hunt. You know, we got no <laughs> shot at, at, at catching these guys. So I'm, I'm gone. I'm going to go, go hunt. Um, he said, yeah. they, don't, they don't let me bet on these meaningless games anymore. So I'm out of here. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but yeah, just a tremendous season. And, and uh, you know, Ruth's, Ruth's year was, it really did rescue baseball because, uh, you know, that, that was before all the great promotions and marketing we've seen in baseball over the last 20, 30 years. Uh, it was long before the San Diego chicken and things of that nature, the Philly fanatic and, and things like that. But uh, in, in those days, you had to be a pennant contender if you were going to draw. And if you weren't in, in contention, you know, you didn't draw very well. And, and a lot of those teams, the Browns, the White Sox, I mean, they were out of it early. And, and it was those, those dates with the Yankees that uh, really brought in the big crowds and, and, and rescued those teams from potential financial calamity that year. And then uh, the World Series against the Pirates. I, I, I had never seen these quotes by some of these National League managers. I, I couldn't believe this after the season the Yankees had had. <laughs> And the, the one manager says, granted, the Yankees are a good club. We have about five of them in the National League. I mean, we're talking about the 1927 New York Yankees who've completed the whole regular season at this point. It's, it's not like, oh, it's April or whatever, that these guys couldn't even grant the murderers row Yankees any sort of, um, you know, well, it must be that the league stinks. That's why the record is so good. And Andrew, that goes back to what we talked about earlier about the the nature of the two separate leagues at that time and how deeply embedded the the uh, uh, belief in one's league the the mm -hmm. uh, you know it, it, it the other league couldn't be any good you know they just couldn't because we're the National League and uh, you're right it was really interesting to come across those quotes from National League managers really dismissing the Yankees as, <laughs> as just being another team and they. They'd finish mid-pack if they were in our league, and then they go out. That was a pretty darn good Pittsburgh team that they just destroyed and and uh, and beat in four straight. All right. Well, Dan, this was a lot of fun. We really enjoyed this. Uh, you know, we we do all sorts of stuff on here on this show, and but we don't. Uh, we hadn't really done a lot of Ruth stuff. Uh, you know, we've we've obviously touched on him in various episodes, but this was good to sort of do do some Ruth stuff. And then this scandal is just a really sort of interesting moment that a lot of people don't know, even if they know about the Black Sox scandal and, um, uh, you know, that, that type of thing from the era that we're talking about here in baseball history. So thanks so much for joining us tonight. Oh, this was fun. Thanks for the opportunity. It was great to be with both of you guys. Thank you. We will uh, link the book when we, when we post the episode, but the book is baseball at the abyss, the scandals of 1926, Babe Ruth and the unlikely savior who rescued a tarnished game by Dan Taylor. Who's been our guest tonight. Absolutely. And thank you all, as always, for joining us. And until next time, I'm Dan Newman.
and I'm Andrew Newman. Goodbye, old sports. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hey there, Sports History fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. With every race, every qualifying run, and every pit stop, Tim Coffeen would feel the pressure and excitement. With his own podcast on the Sports History Network called Tim Coffeen Talks IndyCar and Racing History, Tim will share those very same racing emotions and memories with his listeners. Learn, laugh, and enjoy the world of IndyCar racing through the eyes of Tim Coffeen. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to Sports historynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.